middle of an interview this morning, I said to somebody, I'm going to talk about our interview tonight. I said, I won't say who you are, but it wouldn't have mattered because it was a fine interview and the person was doing great. But uh, what we were talking about together had um, so much to do with where we are up to in the instructions. You've noticed that they've been being elaborated on all week long to include more and more of uh, the experience moment to moment, starting as we did four or five days ago with just exclusive attention to the breath and moving it out to attention to the whole of the body and all of the physical sensations and moment to moment inside and outside and including emotions and now thoughts. So I want to talk about where the instructions are going and uh, also because it gives me uh, an opportunity to talk about continuity and practice which Sally brought up again this morning and why that's so important and also because it gives me as always again an opportunity to talk about what's the point of doing these instructions where are we going what's the point of the practice it's not to be a good meditator but to become wise or awake or recognize our, realize our full potential as loving human beings. So I get to say that again and again. <laughs> and also to make the point of how the practice gets us there. And I'm convinced that the more that I know how this, the techniques of practice are connected to the fruits of practice, the more my practice is imbued with zeal and my intention is inspired. So... That's where we're starting. person I was with described her experience this way. She said, um, what should I do? You know, I'm not exclusively with the breath. I'm sometimes with the breath. I feel my breath, and I notice it a little bit inside, outside. I feel it. But I feel lots of other physical sensations. They arise and pass away. And I hear sounds, and uh, uh, I, thoughts come up and pass by. Said, but you know, I'm just sitting, and mostly it's just one thing and then another thing and then one thing and another thing, and I feel okay and I feel very bright and alert. I'm not sleepy. Should I make more of an effort to be more exclusively with the breath, and or if if I'm doing that or if I'm being with moving around sensations. It's hard to name every single thing that's arriving. Now this, and now that, and now that, and now that, and now that. What should I do about the noting business? So I said, well, I think it's a good thing to be noting. I don't think you have to try harder. I think it would be good to note your situation. So you could make a note, something like this. You could say to yourself as you're sitting there, awake. That'd be a good note. (laughs) Or present, or content, that's a good note, or happy, that's another good one. The person said, can I do that? I said, yeah, I mean, we're really just commenting on what's happening, that's what's happening, happiness is present. And to note that, say, well, you don't have to note it every second, you don't have to be compulsive about the noting. You don't have to note every single, as we did with the breath, in and out and in and out. Don't have to sit and say, awake, 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 awake. (laughs) But you could say it with a fairly 
close attention to whether or not you are. First time one of my teachers taught me that, awareness of really a mind state, uh, it had to do with sleepiness. And I said, you know, I'm, I'd be clear for a while, but then all of a sudden, and unbeknownst to me how it happens, I'm gone. And she said, well, are you sometimes clear? I said, yeah, sometimes I am. So well, how about notice that? How about notice clear, clear? I started to do that. And you notice you're sitting and say, clear, 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 not so clear. <laughs> Drowsy. Okay, breath in, breath out, breath in, breath out, clear. Because that's what does it. So that it doesn't slip away from you. That There's a certain amount of really being with the experience. Every moment of mindfulness conditions the next moment of mindfulness. That's really true. In every moment that you're awake, the next moment is conditioned with wakefulness. Nothing is lost. So this person said to me, doesn't the noting make you very busy? That was, that was that piece of the discussion. No, no, it doesn't have to make you busy. It keeps you awake. And then she asked a really good question. She said, well, doesn't it get in the way of your experience? If you're saying what's happening, uh, how can you be in the experience and uh, commenting about it at the same time? So I said, well, I think you can be in the experience. As a matter of fact, the truth is, I don't think that there's anyone who's ever in or out of any experience. There isn't anyone who's in or out of any experience. There's just the experience and the knowing of it. And some, and the fact of knowing that an experience is pleasant, as it's pleasant, being wakeful to that, knowing it, the knowing of it arouses joy. I realized today when I was thinking about it that the knowing of pleasant... Uh, Arises, bring, arouses a certain kind of mudita, like the awareness of joy in someone else, the awareness of a good situation in someone else, when the heart is content and the mind is balanced, arouses a certain kind of sympathetic joy, just naturally. You delight in something good is happening. And I realize that the same thing happens with oneself, that uh, the awareness awake brings with it a certain amount of joy and delight and really amplifies the amount of wakefulness because joy and delight is a rousing energy, not an unbalancing energy if it's that wise mudita uh, in response to what's happening and out of a balanced mind energy. So I think it's a very lovely continuing circle of support Murita for oneself. I was really happy to think about that today. I like that a lot. Awake, I said, is never boring. Even if awake is awake to an unpleasant situation, it's not boring. Because there's a certain amount of interest just in the wakefulness, seeing things. Awake to the sense of peace and ease is particularly important. I think it's for myself and for the person I was sitting with this morning. I said, you know, this is, a, this is an insight. This is a validation of what the Buddha taught, that peace is in fact possible in the middle of life. It was a really important moment in my own meditation practice to realize, as I, exa- I remember exactly where I was, uh, 
and in what place where I realize I'm sitting here and I have peace in my mind and in my heart. My body is at peace. My life is my life. My world is my world. And I'm okay. It's not without problems. My life is not without problems. My world is definitely not without problems. But this moment is fine. This moment is sufficient unto itself. Somebody said, somebody in the last several nights, I don't know who it is, I'm hopeful, I think it's true that we all sound like each other and we just continue one long, one long explanation through the week. We just pick up where the other person left off. But somebody said, uh, the, the feeling that uh, I don't need anything in this moment. Nothing extra is required. I don't want anything. You know, uh, I have a cartoon on my uh, kitchen, uh, on my kitchen wall that a friend of mine gave me. This is apropos of Sally's talk last night of how much we want. We always want either to have this or not have this or have a different thing than what we have. And she was so inspiring in her list of the many ways in which we could find to want something otherwise all the time. I have a uh, Nicole Hollander cartoon framed in my kitchen. It's a Sylvia cartoon, so you know they're always Sylvia typing away. And she's typing a list, and the heading of the list is uh, 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 responses you always wanted to make. And so response number one is, uh, yes, it is unusual to win the Nobel Peace Prize and uh, an Olympic medal in the same year. The the second one is, uh, as long as you're out shopping, uh, it'd be great if you brought me a pair of leather pants in a size two. (laughs) And uh, the third one is, um, thank you, I have everything I need. And so that's what she's typing. Around this figure of Sylvia typing, there's a bubble, a, a speech bubble that lets you know that someone in the next room has called in, is calling her and saying, Ma, I'm going to the store. Do you want me to get anything for you? And her response is, just get me two of everything. <laughs> it's hard not to want. I mean, with the world is... Uh, I, I was remembering today the Robert Louis Stevenson uh, line, the world is so full of a number of things, I think we should all be as happy as kings. And it's a wonderful line, you know, the the sense that the world could be full of things that we could delight in the extravagance of creation. And then we have this other little problem of when things are attractive, there's a, that we want them, you know, and when things are not attractive, we want to get rid of them. We talk about that a little bit more, that movement in the mind for and against. I remember one time, this is an old story, but it, it was so significant to me. It, it, it's, it, after some years of practice, but a long time ago, and uh, in uh, a monastery in Santa Rosa and, and Santa Sabina, where many of us have practiced together over the last couple of decades, and it was a, quite a gray day and misty, a little bit cold. I was practicing away just the way you are. And it was coming on to lunchtime. It was sitting before lunch. And uh, you know how it is at about 12.15 when you're really thinking about lunch. 
and I was hungry. And uh, I went outside to sit uh, for the last 15 minutes or so, and I was sitting on a bench, and uh, it turned out as after I sat down that the stone bench was a little bit uncomfortable. I was sitting on the stone bench. It was a little bit cold. The day was misty and foggy, and uh, the trees... It was February, so the trees didn't have any um, blossoms on them yet. But I had sat down, and I was warm enough. I had a coat on, so I sat. And I'm in and out, and trying to be mindful and sitting, and feeling pretty present and pretty content and pretty much at ease, and hungry, but pretty much at ease, and just sitting, breathing, being present, being present, being present, being present, and um, comfortable. And then the bell rang for lunch, and I was sitting. And I realized, I heard the bell, I realized it was lunchtime, and I was realizing that in that moment, no imperative arose in the mind to get up and go have lunch. I didn't think, ah, I just sat. I was, it was sufficient unto itself. And I sat there a little bit, and I realized, I heard the bell, I am hungry, I will go have lunch, but I'm fine, just the way I was. And that lack of imperative was so pleasant. I thought to myself, I'm truly enlightened. That's it. (laughs) And when I open my eyes, this tree with the bare branches in front of me, with nothing on it, is going to be full of flowers. (laughs) This is going to be Annie Dillard, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Everything is going to be brilliantly ablaze. And I opened my eyes, and the tree was just like the tree, the same as before I closed it. And the day was still foggy and cold, but I was really happy. I thought that was a really, really important thing for me to know. And then I went and had lunch. But the important part of that story is that the mind without craving, the mind without imperative, is really the mind that's at peace, it's free. It can make a decision to do this or that, or that, or this. It can take care of itself. It can go have lunch, but it's not in difficulty. It's really, peace is possible is the third of the Four Noble Truths. And I realized today that here we are in the middle of this retreat, and we haven't said the Four Noble Truths yet. And many people probably haven't heard them. Lots of people here are new. So when the Buddha expressed his understanding of really a concise understanding of the dilemma that we face and the solution to the dilemma. He said four things that we understand as those four noble truths. And the first of them was that life is really continually challenging. The word he used is dukkha. It's often um, translated as suffering. But... Uh, we have a sense of suffering that... um, I I, I think the English word suffering doesn't do it. I like the word unsatisfactoriness as a translation better. That the, the, the sense of dukkha is that since everything is impermanent, everything is changing, there isn't a way to make oneself or anything permanently comfortable. We need to keep making adjustments. Adjustments are required in order to keep our body comfortable, in order to keep our mind comfortable, challenged by all the needs of the body, by all the needs of the mind. 
one challenge after another. And then the second noble truth, really, uh, the, the, I, I think the point of, of uh, a major point of Sally's talk last night was that uh, the cause of suffering is craving, is the imperative in the mind to have things other than what they are. You know, that uh, Guy said it the other night, I guess, when he was talking about the teaching of uh, uh, our friend and colleague and teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, who says, I say to myself, it's like this. I actually practiced for a while. When I heard Ajahn Sumedho say that for the first time, I saw him do it with a particular hand gesture. He said, I say to myself, if a situation is difficult, I say to myself, it's like this. So I thought to myself, and I had such a transmission of wisdom from that. I thought it was maybe the hand gestures. I've been practicing it. Because I said it to somebody else somewhere, and they said, well, it sounds like what teenagers say, whatever. But, but, but it's not whatever, because whatever has a little bit of... Um, Whatever has a little bit of indifference about it, like I couldn't care, and uh, that's not what this is about. Indifference has a little bit of aversion in it. Whatever means this is what's happening. It can't be other. It's actually a wisdom statement. This is what's happening. Not just I know it, but it is what's happening, and it couldn't be other because it's what's happening. Because it's happening, it means this is the karmic result of everything that ever happened, and this is the magic of this moment arising. could be pleasant or not pleasant. You know, we didn't talk about, in the, in the uh, sequence of instructions, in a formal way, although we've certainly alluded to it a lot, the second foundation of mindfulness. The first is mindfulness of the body, and the third is mindfulness of mind states. And we have talked a little bit about the fourth, mindfulness of the way things come together and arise in certain patterns. The second is mindfulness of feeling tone of experience, moment to moment. And there are only three. You know, sometimes we think, well, there are so many feelings. In this particular vocabulary, there are three feeling tones every moment. Every experience is either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Sometimes I think there are very few neutral situations, very few neutral experiences. It's either, then we don't, because mostly when the experiences are neutral, we don't notice them very much. Much more notice something that has a flavor, kind of space out on the neutral ones. But that particular uh, domain, a foundation of mindfulness, is really important. The, the Pali word for it is vedna, this feeling tone. And it's really important because what, what happens in response to different feeling tones is there's a movement of a mind towards a certain experience when it's pleasant. We're pleasure-seeking animals. That's not a mistake, you know, that it's actually good that our bodies work that way, that we know, oh, this looks like a good thing, and this looks like a not good thing, and in many cases, that's probably good for us to know that. And likes and uh, aversions come out of that. We make those judgments. 
what's really important to know about those feeling tones coming up is that they really do cause the mind to move in one direction or another and cause a certain amount of tension in the mind. And it's possible to see that something arises with this or that feeling tone and make a judgment about it and have the judgment not be clouded by the movement of the mind. That when we're aware of a feeling tone, it really lessens the pull that it has. And notice it, oh, this is pleasant, but I don't have to do anything about it. Or this is unpleasant, and I don't have to do anything about it. It's a funny story happened to me a few years ago, or at least I thought it was funny. I hope you think it's funny. I was teaching two retreats uh, back-to-back at a... Uh, retreat center in on, on the East Coast. And uh, there were some people, they were each about five days long, and there were some people staying over. Uh, they were Monday to fr- Sunday to Friday and then Sunday to Friday. And there were some people staying over in between. And on the last day of the retreat number one, they were mindfulness retreats, last day of retreat number one, uh, there was a huge storm on the East Coast and uh, all the electricity went out. And this is a rural place so that all the water pumps worked on the electricity. The refrigerators and freezers worked on, on, on uh, the electricity. So the toilets didn't flush and you couldn't run the water. And you couldn't open the, the refrigerators to take out food. So we had to be dealing with dry food. Anyway, we made it through the last day. And most of the people who were leaving the retreat, just left, sort of, I'm, I hope, pleased with the retreat, but also pleased to be going home at that point. <laughs> and here were the half a dozen or so folks staying over the weekend, we're going to do the next week. And here we are in this deserted retreat center, out in the rural, so that by the time the power crews get around, it's probably going to take another day or so. And we have this whole weekend stretching ahead of us, and uh, we're having a cold breakfast together. Uh, and somebody said, you know what? These, we're now talking because this first retreat is finished. They said, this is really unpleasant. <laughs> this is unpleasant. So we said, as a matter of fact, we could all pack and go to the nearest small town, but anyway, a town, city, and stay in a Motel 6 for the weekend or something like that. Somebody said... That's a very pleasant idea. Let's do that. <laughs> so we, you know, we all, we got all packed up. We went to the hotel, and throughout the weekend, you know, we unpacked. That we met for dinner, and it was warm motel. It was it was a cold season of the year. It's a warm motel. We didn't have to stay so bundled up. We were sitting in a dining room that was lit. The food was warm, and all through the dinner, people said, "This is pleasant. <laughs> this is really pleasant." <laughs> I, I really had such a sense of learning about pleasant and unpleasant. Those very same people who become friends of mine when we communicate now. <laughs> we often are talking on the phone. I, I'll say, well, how was it? They say, well, it was very pleasant. <laughs> so it's not about, in order that the mind not be troubled by moving one way or another way, 
that we that we work towards a time that all our experience becomes neutral and it's all the same with us and it's all blah and anything is just the same as anything else that's not going to work because that's not true we we have neuro, we have neurological systems and some things are, and we have minds and some things are pleasant and some things are unpleasant it's not about getting that rid of pleasant and unpleasant it's not even about getting rid of the natural pull of the mind towards and against something it's about seeing it all and then you can make a judgment this is very unpleasant let's go to Kingston for the weekend we can do it Let's do it. When you can, it's fine. If you can't, then you don't. But it's without the craving about it. I'm glad you laughed. I didn't know if that was that funny. Just one more thing about the second noble truth. It's often, uh, it's often, uh, the word for craving is tanha. And it really means... um, irreconcilable need to have things be other. So that the source of suffering is actually one's own mind, not the situation. In the movie Kundun, which uh, I loved, I take out about once a year and watch again, and uh, which is the um, account of the life of the current Dalai Lama, and I'm sure close to the real story, there's a, at least to me, tremendously endearing scene where the young Dalai Lama, having been recognized as the incarnate Dalai Lama, is being tutored by his teachers. And he is reciting the Four Noble Truths. And he does the first one, and then he does the second one. Uh, and he says, of, he says the, the cause of suffering is craving. And they stop him, and they say, "Not enough humility." And uh, you know, and, the, and it's so dear because he in the in the movie, he's a child. He's five or six years old, and he pauses and he thinks about it as if he's thinking about it for a minute, and then he says, "I am the cause of most of my suffering because of the habits of my own mind." And it's so dear. I mean, imagine a five or six-year-old saying that. I mean, most of us are still learning that. But it's such an important line. I am the cause of most of my suffering because of the habits of my own mind. I know that that's true in my experience. I'll have pain in my life for the rest of my life. Everybody does. But I could have less suffering. That's actually what the Buddha promised. Not the end of pain, just the end of suffering. That things may not be what I want. Things in the world, things in my life, things in my body. And suffering is what I bring to it by struggling with it. And it doesn't mean impassivity. It doesn't mean anything that happens okay. It means you do what you can do. You go to Kingston if the electricity is out. You act in the world. This year I am more active politically than I've been in a long time. I hope I'm doing it without anger. Uh, I'm determined 
to do as much as I can to tell my political views. But what I always am telling people is I have a lot of faith in uh, telling people what I think is important. I have a lot of faith in change and in hope. I have a lot of concerns about the world. But a, a, a conviction that the world is the way it is, not because of an accident, but because of greed and hatred and delusion. And it got that way lawfully because of greed, hatred, and delusion. And that my contribution to changing the world so that it's a safer and saner place to be will be to work on my own greed, hatred, and delusion and tell other people about it and tell them my political views as well at the same time. Tell them what I think will foster more sharing of clarity. The third noble truth is that uh, peace is possible in the middle of everything. So we started with that with that interview that I had with someone this morning. But I think about a non-contentious, non-embittered mind being another way to talk about peace is possible in this very life. An awake mind, a non-embittered, non-contentious mind, not because it's unconscious to what's going on, but because it's really conscious, really has wisdom in it, knowing things could not be otherwise, that things will change, and that they'll change as a result of actions, what people do. You know, I think another way of saying why we are doing this practice why we are working so hard to establish peace we could say well it's it's sort of self-evident that everybody wants peace peace of mind peace of heart but also when the mind is peaceful the heart is open and then we get to really experience really fully what I think we have as a potential of human beings to be the most loving that we can possibly be. I think that when the mind is clear, we make wise judgments. I'm so, I've never been imperiled myself. Uh, uh, my, my, my health has never been really imperiled. I was in an airplane once um, 10, 15 years ago that uh, was sufficiently, uh, that had to make an emergency landing with everybody in crash position and shoes off and pens out of the pocket and eyeglasses off. And that's about the scariest flight I've ever taken. (laughs) But the thing that was so important for me after it is that um, as the plane was landing back down in Chicago midway and... um, as we came down, I could see all the fire trucks lined up because the landing gear they thought wouldn't go down, but it did. Everything worked in the end. But here were all these trucks out there, and we had a half hour turn around and go back uh, to think about what could happen. And in that in, in that half hour, uh, I realized I was really frightened, but 
I paid attention to the fear, really. I actually, it's a great story. I was reading a, a Dharma book by my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, and they made this announcement um, about, you have to take off your glasses and get ready, we're going to have to do this. And I thought, well, I'll just read my book to uh, distract myself as we <laughs> ride back. And I opened the book, and the page where that I opened, the first sentence that I read said, when you're in a difficult situation, don't try to distract yourself. <laughs> Pay attention. So, so I put away the book. Thank you very much. I paid attention to my fear and my body and my feelings. And pretty soon it was clear that I, I, I was doing metta. I had done a lot of metta practice. It's natural for me to do metta practice. I was doing a lot of metta practice for my family for this one and the other one and the other one and the other one and all the people on my major meta list. But then as we were landing in, uh, in Chicago, I realized I couldn't keep saying everybody's name and it, it became impossible to say anything other than may all beings be peaceful, may all beings be happy, may all beings be peaceful, may all beings be happy, may all beings be peaceful, may all beings be happy, and the plane landed and it was fine. But it wasn't bad, that landing. And I realized in the end of it that in the last 30 seconds before it came down, I thought, well, this is either the end of my life or not. And I certainly hoped that it wasn't, but I was okay. I hope I can do the end that way. The people who didn't end alive on the 9-11 flights, who made phone calls, all said, I love you, which is another way. It's a meta expression. It's what our heart does when we are unconfused. Not even peaceful. I wasn't peaceful. The people on the 9-11 flights weren't peaceful. It's really unconfused. When the mind is unconfused, then the heart loves. That's what happens. It's a great thing to think about peace as possible in the middle of a life, in the middle of turmoil. Two weeks ago, I was in France and uh, I, I was there for nine days, and the first seven of it, I was in rural France, northwest of Paris, and um, traveling alone with my husband. It was quiet, it's farm country, it's very pastoral. It's a very quiet week, and uh, no television, no newspapers. Um, it was magic to be away from the world, like on a retreat, just like this. And it was lovely. And uh, then we came back to Paris where we were for two days before we flew home. And all of a sudden, we got to see CNN in the hotel rooms. You see what's going on in the whole world and the newspapers all over the place. And uh, the streets were crowded and lots of stuff going on. Such a tremendous bombardment of stimuli. And it was very hot. It was unusually hot for so early. Uh, it, It was two weeks ago yet, hot. And one afternoon after um, a, a long day of walking around the streets of Paris in the heat, I was thinking about Sally's talk last night when she said, two people travel and one has one view of what to see and another one has another view of how to do it. At three o'clock on that afternoon, I almost burst out laughing last night when she said that. At three o'clock on that afternoon, we passed by the Church of the Madeleine 
in the middle of Paris, and it had a, a, a notice outside. It said the chamber choir of Peace College from the United States was giving a concert right at that time, free concert. And so we went in. And uh, here we are in the middle of Paris, horns, noise, heat, people. The world is going on, the wars are going on, the newspapers, the TV, we walk in. It's a beautiful church, and it's quiet, and it's cool. It's a beautiful big cathedral. And people are hushed in there. You go in, you already feel better. And so we go and we sit down in front, and people are sitting quietly. And I think this is all. This is somewhat like a metaphor for the possibility in the middle of a turmoil world. This is like an oasis of peace, and we just sat down in the middle of it, just sitting. And here comes the choir, peace choir. And I had been very excited when I read the uh, the the. Uh, a notice outside because it said Peace College from the United States and I thought that's marvelous there must be some college that teaches peace studies my friend Sheila's son Ezra has a degree in um, uh, reconciliation and um, conflict resolution must be a whole college that does peace studies turns out that Peace College is a private liberal arts and science college for women located in Raleigh, North Carolina, founded in 1857 by Presbyterian elder William Peace. (laughs) (laughs) And has educated women since 1872. Anyway, this group of 20 women is on tour uh, all over Europe. It's their sixth European tour. And... um, and they sing mostly Renaissance, Renaissance and Baroque music, a cappella, unaccompanied, beautiful voices, and uh, and praises the the, the whole uh, of the um, the whole of the uh, of the program are chants of praise, praising the world, praising creation. And I thought, in the middle of the whole world you could have people coming together and saying, peace is possible, praise God, praise. I looked at them, and I thought that's what the heart does, you know, when it's peaceful, it praises, it says thank you. It's a wonderful story about some woman, it's a Buddhist story, and I don't remember who the woman is, it's a great story. But my friend Jack tells it all the time about some woman, a, a Japanese Buddhist teacher, I suppose, but I don't know her name, who, uh, whose dying utterance uh, was said to be, thank you very much, I have no complaints. It's a wonderful way to think about leaving this world. Sometimes I think the very best liturgy of all, I love our liturgy, which is completely silent, but uh, I think the very best liturgy of all would be to say thank you if it really indicated the place that our hearts were in. Or maybe thank you in order to move the heart into the place that it could say thank you. Just for this moment, just for life, just for the opportunity to love, not for the particulars of my particular body or story or life, just for life itself.
for the possibility of connecting in love. I was particularly pleased on uh, with that. that. So I immediately just was in a very exalted place with this. And here came these women all out. And I was further exalted by the fact that there were 20 women and they... Um, they were all wearing the same costume. They were all wearing black choir robes. But they're all different sizes and shapes. They're all the same age. They're somewhere 18 to 22, probably. But there were some tall and some short and some broad and some narrow. And amazing ethnic diversity. And you just see that. And I just so loved that. I thought to myself, I have no idea where these women came from. It was an amazing amount of diversity for 20 people. I said, maybe they all live in North Carolina to begin with. But you can see that they have peoples who came from all over the whole world. And I decided that them coming together and singing in one voice was a metaphor for the fact that the whole of the world and peoples who have been separate from each other in different ways and maybe afraid of each other forever could come together in ways that they haven't been able to yet and sing together in one voice songs of praise. I have that as a hope for people because I think that's what happens. That's what's the birthright of human beings to look at other people and in a moment of clarity know this person is a person just like me, just like me, has the same wants, the same desires, wants to connect in love, wants not to be afraid, wants to be able to go home and share with family or friends, wants community, wants to lie down in peace and get up in peace, just like me. I think that's what this practice of clear seeing is meant to do. Really see through the constructs that we have and see clearly what's important, what's really true, what's meaningful. It was a small story. I didn't know when I would tell it. I was flying home from Newark. I flew from Paris to Newark and then Newark to San Francisco. And uh, I was sitting next to a woman, not very much younger than I was, am, on the, <laughs> on the flight from Newark. So you get to talking about uh, where do you live? She lives in some uh, Jersey Shore town. Why are you going to uh, San Francisco? Uh, my fiancé lives there, and uh, his father died. Uh, and... Uh, so I'm going to the funeral. And uh, so we talked a little bit, told me the whole, her whole story. And she's a woman not so much younger than I, so they're middle-aged, older folks. Um, she said, I had to buy, he just died, and I had to buy this ticket right away um, because they're Jews, and Jews bury the next day. So you have to buy a ticket that very day, and they're quite expensive. And she works for the post office. So I said, that's quite a lot of money. And she said, I know. She said, but it's the right thing to do. So I said, I think it is. 
And then we talked about how did you meet this particular person? And she said, well, we met on the internet because the post office has an internet that people talk to each other about problems and post office dilemmas. And I <laughs> met him six years ago on the internet. And uh, then after three years of writing on the internet back and forth, we met each other in person three years ago. And we've been together ever since. He lives here, I live there. He has this old father who just died. I have an old mother who's living with me. So we couldn't either of us leave them, could we? I think to myself, this is a remarkable woman. Uh, And I said, well, how was that, that three years on the internet? I said, uh, uh, she said, well, we soon realized that we had a lot in common and we liked each other and that we'd like to meet sometime, but we took three years to be. And she said, I said, uh, did you send photos of each other? She said, oh, no. I said, you mean you've waited three years to see how the other person looked? She said, oh, yeah. She said, it's not important what a person looks like on the outside. It's not important what a person looks like on the inside. And I thought to myself, wow. <laughs> she said, I thought I was getting to know him on the inside. So my questions were getting worse and worse. I felt <laughs> more and more stupid about what I was asking. I said, so when you met him, were you pleased with how he looked? <laughs> she said, well, sure. She said, he's a little man, but he looks fine. <laughs> He's wonderful on the inside. I actually, I, and I thought it was such a, you know, I was thinking about where am I going to tell this story about when you get your values clear, when your mind is not confused. So I think about the due deliberate life that this woman has apparently lived that ends her up with good values. I don't think she studied Buddhism. I don't know what, whatever ism she studied. I think good values are inherent in our heart if we keep our mind clear. I think we're doing this practice because when the mind is clear, it becomes the arena into which insights arise, into which we see clearly what's true, that everything is impermanent. Life is really short. Every permutation of that awareness, there isn't a moment to spare to waste on acrimony, on grudge, on vindictive, on revenge. I don't want to waste a moment of my life. I can't remember who it was, one of us probably, who said that one of... uh, (laughs) who said that, you can tell me later, who said that their teacher said to them, it's your life, don't miss it. I don't want to miss my life tied up in acrimony or or grudge or resentment. To know that everything is impermanent, to have to know that every time I struggle with what I cannot change, I will suffer. I'll continue to struggle sometimes because it's hard sometimes to not. But even when I struggle and I say to myself, if I would stop struggling, I'd stop suffering. If I can't stop struggling, I at least have the space to be compassionate about the fact that I'm struggling. I'm better off. And I get to see, and anybody gets to see, because these are the insights that we all experience, that everything is connected to everything else, and that everything that I do and everything that you do is part of my karma into the future and the collective karma 
into the future, I am responsible for my suffering because of the habits of my mind. And I want to change them slowly. They're entrenched, but they change. They get less demanding. You can see that everything is related to everything in the most mundane things as you walk around here and do walking practice, literally. You pick up your foot. It has to come down. You can't stay there with the foot up in the air forever. (laughs) The fact that the intention has arose to pick up the foot now causes the foot to come down. And that foot coming down causes the weight to come forward. And the weight coming forward causes the back leg to pick up. And that now being up, you've got to do something with it. You can't stay there poised. It has to come forward. Try that when you're walking. You'll notice that that's a fact. That's why we walk. Until the intention arises to stop walking, and then you have to stop that. Otherwise, you'd walk on. Actually, in fact, I think that it was in the middle of a step that I had my first clear, absolutely clear understanding that there's no one at all who's walking. I can actually show you the spot in Yucca Valley where I knew that for sure, that no one was walking, that walking was happening, but no one was doing it. There isn't a moment in your whole day here that is not a possibility for the arising of an insight in a dramatic and incredible way. I used to think to myself when my teacher said, these are the insights, one, two, three. I said, all right, I get that, I get that, I get that. Who doesn't know things change? Who doesn't know that struggling is the, the cause of suffering? Why will it be different if I experience it? It is different if you experience it. It's my experience that it's different. You know, I had the hardest time with the one about there's no one there. I thought my teachers were right about the first two insights and wrong about the third. But I liked them so well that I decided I would just hang out and see what happened. <laughs> you know, there's one more thing I want to say. I've, I've joked a little bit about, um, although it's really no joking matter, about having been born for whatever reason with a mind that, um, whose principal hindrance is the making of a calamity out of any possible possibility. And uh, being a fairly anxious person through my childhood and young adulthood, Guy talked about the other day, it's very embarrassing as a hindrance. More embarrassing than, uh, they're all embarrassing. Whoever's got it, that's that's the embarrassing hindrance. People don't like to, except anger. People don't mind so much, I discover, saying that anger is their hindrance. But they're very embarrassed to say, lust is my hindrance. Uh, It sounds terrible. And... (laughs) It's embarrassing to say that anxiety, that anxiety, fretting is your hindrance because people will say, well, you know, worrying never does anybody any good. Of course it doesn't. Everybody knows that. But I want to talk in general about fearfulness, different from worrying, that calamitous worrying, that all of the imperatives that we have, that things be this way and not that way, make a general level of fearfulness in everyone. Maybe in some people more than others, but we're fearful that things will not go in a way that we won't won't get what we want, we won't get rid of what we don't want, things won't happen in our way. It's the corollary, I think, of being um, pleasure-seeking animals as we get frightened when something is perceived as a threat. 
and old age and sickness and death are things that are going to happen to all of us and they're often perceived as threats, I think. Unless we have a mind that's able to say, this is what happens. Happens to everybody, sooner or later. In this complicated world, where for all of us, old age, sickness and death will separate us and everyone else from what's loved, we could just stop with that and take care of each other make the pain of the world less, just respond to each other as human beings wanting to have a life. When I travel, I take very little things with me to teach from, but I, uh, I carry the Metta Sutta all the time, which I anyway know by heart, but I also carry um, the poem On Kindness by Naomi Shihab Nye, and I carry the poem uh, Keeping Quiet by Pablo Neruda, the Chilean poet. I, w- I won't read you the whole poem. Um, well, maybe I will. It's short. Now we will all count to twelve, and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment, without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving, and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us, as when everything seems dead in winter and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to 12, and you keep quiet, and I will go. My, best, my favorite sentence is, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and threatening ourselves with death. So I think I want to tell you to finish that uh, the peace chamber choir of Peace College ended their um, performance of uh, primarily Renaissance music, a a musical arrangement of Psalm 117 that was written in 1959 as part of it, praising, all praising, saying, let's let the loving kindness of the world shine out and praise it. But it ended the performance by singing Amazing Grace. So um, I thought about, without, you know, without repeating the whole of the lyrics for you, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, and now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I think that what we are trying to do here in this practice is to do that last part, was blind, but now I see. I'm happy to tell you that, by the way, because I have, in fact, three songs that the words that I say my metta to myself fit 
And this gives me, and people always say, do you want to sing what you do? And I say, no, no, it's a secret. So now I'll tell you one of my secrets is that Amazing Grace is one of those. It fits. Was blind, but now I see. So let's sit for just a minute. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on May 28, 2004. It is an offering of the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.